This is The Lab with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. A new show that we're doing, which is going to be an exploration of works, an exploration of concepts. Each week, we'll bring in a different work, different concept, and each of us will explore it for about five minutes apiece, and then we'll talk about it. There will also be Patreon-exclusive B-side episodes, which will be a little looser and a little bit more informal. And we'll have about one of these out every week, one main and one patron episode. We're starting this week with Whiplash and the theme of intensity. Helen, kick us off. Okay, I'm going to go first. Well, um, I hope I don't let everybody down with my with my take. Um, so I watched it again last night, having seen it a number of years ago. Um, I always have like really strong feeling in response to Damien Chazelle films, but maybe I can go into that a little bit uh, in greater detail. So we were going to talk about this sort of theme of intensity. And there are a few sort of theoretical points related to the idea of intensity that came to mind when watching the film. And I guess they sort of relate to some of the thinkers I'm interested in. Marx, Freud, Lacan, and Hegel. So the first of them is this idea of transference. So we have this main character training to be a jazz uh, drummer, and he has this very intense, horrific, scary, basically abusive teacher. Um, I'm really into sort of psychoanalysis and the theory of psychoanalysis, like kind of traditional psychoanalysis. And I often hear that there's a... um, sort of a misconception about psychoanalysis that it's about going to therapy and having this kind of patriarchal figure who knows everything about theory, who, you know, sits there and reads your mind, reads what's going on in your mind, when it couldn't be further from the truth, because it's, it's about transference and then breaking that transference when you kind of realise that this person who you assume to be knowledgeable and omnipotent is also a split subject. And so you come to the understanding that we all are lacking split subjects and that nobody has this totalizing answer about the world and I think it's sort of like obviously films aren't there necessarily to get everything theoretically correct and I don't know if this isn't a Freudian film or whatever but it is sort of interesting that I think it's something that you know in terms of this idea of transference like for me if I was making this film I would find a way to reveal that the character the teacher at the end is actually you know that the, the jazz drummer doesn't become as much of an you know, horrible asshole of this guy, but that maybe that, that we discover that something's lacking. But in order for that to take place, in order for the lack to be revealed in the big other, transference has to take place. You can't just get there, you know, get there and realise um, the lacking big other without it. So Zizek talks a lot about sort of the this falsity of the, the hippie parent, that the hippie parent isn't some magical solution to make your child less, you know, more free and less neurotic, but can actually make your child even more neurotic. So you do need these sort of transferential figures where you have this experience that they know everything and then you're kind of disabused of that fact. There are a couple of other things in terms of uh, notions to do with like enjoyment and value that I was thinking about. Obviously, you know, this this film is about somebody who is uh, trying to become the greatest jazz musician ever or whatever. But it is, you know, isn't I actually, you know, my practice is in within the arts. And there's this tension between sort of like trying to be the best person ever. I think the film does a 
you know, sort of a job of um, highlighting him in particular as this vehicle of greatness. And a lot of the comments he talks about, you know, I'd rather die at 34, you know, um, maybe drunk but famous and having achieved something, rather than like the actual art itself. And this is something I noticed in La La Land and other other films by the same director. Um, but obviously, part of, I think there's a, a fallacy and there's this kind of a capitalistic idea of within things like, you know, sports and the arts of these people who've managed to make it and be really successful and powerful and achieved a great deal, that it's all through the value of that, the why we hang a gold medal around their neck is because they have pushed themselves so far to achieve that goal. But really, the value is to do with the sacrifice of all those people who have tried, who haven't actually managed to get to that pinnacle. All the contingent things have got in the way, you know, I don't know, a marathon runner might have become ill or injured or, you know, a a musician might not have been able to have the means to reach the pinnacle of training or whatever. So, you know, it's not really, I think there's a real fallacy and it comes out in the sort of narrative form that we have, which I don't think is a bad thing, um, but the certain ideological narrative form within sort of Hollywood movies of like, at your own hand, you can make it to to be the greatest. So value is created through sacrifice, but it's includes all the people who haven't been able to achieve what you've achieved um and then the last thing i kind of there's a couple of more ideas but i'll save them for the later discussion there's a couple of more ideas that i have in terms of um enjoyment and intensity so obviously this process of he's he's striving he's pushing himself his hands are bleeding he's sweating all over the drums to get to the point of this pinnacle of achievement you know there's a sort of like very sexual element to it you know there's a sort of um i guess you know <laughs> within sex i guess that the point is that you know the 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 moment before having sex is the thing that's the pleasurable thing and but the actual achievement of whatever is is essentially a nothing you're kind of let down so you know as as human subjects we we orientate ourselves around fantasy that we will do everything we can to achieve but the fantasy is never this transcendental thing that's, I mean, it remains a fantasy. It can never make us whole, complete. It can never fill in this lack that we believe it will. So the point being, again, he talks about this this jazz musician who died at 34, depressed alcoholic. You know, he became the greatest jazz musician, but it didn't do anything to fill this kind of essential lack that we all experience. So the point being is that in this intense pursuit, we have to realize where the enjoyment is. And the enjoyment is in this painful pleasure which is before the achievement, in the process of, achieve, of achieving, in the process of going towards the goal. And we as humans could often be like really unhappy because we suffer, 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 sacrificing everything that we you know, possibly can in order to maintain this fantasy. If only we could achieve this fantasy, we'd feel whole and complete. But when we get that fantasy, we're completely melancholic. It doesn't resolve anything. It doesn't fill any lack. Or we don't achieve the fantasy and we think, like, if only I had had achieved it, I would not be depressed. So you can be depressed or melancholic. But really, the value and the enjoyment resides in this, you know, between place, in this towardsness and this intense experience. You know, if you're going to push yourself, if you're going to really experience this intensity, then you have to realise that that's all the enjoyment you're ever really going to get is in that place rather than on the other side of becoming, you know, this world-renowned jazz drummer. Yeah, those are my thoughts. Yeah, I think um, one thing that really struck me, I suppose, was this kind of inhuman 
character of the drive, which I think relates obviously to what you're saying, Helen. But, you know, the fact that he risks his life in a way, he almost kind of dies. There's a terrible scene where he kind of isn't looking, he's on the phone, he's desperately trying to get to a late rehearsal before a competition. And, you know, and, and he kind of, he runs off kind of damaged and, and the, the kind of repeated scenes of the bloodletting. And so that the kind of inhuman drive or the intensity is sort of stripping away his very body in a way. It's kind of, you know, he's falling apart basically in the name of this um higher dedication and yeah i think i think in that sense it was a, it was quite an interesting representation of that that drive and other films that came to mind most obviously i suppose were things like black swan um which kind of does a similar thing in terms of the kind of intensity of um the dance or dancing and the kind of identitarian split that this engenders in the in the dancer and also this other film called the kindergarten teacher actually which is a very interesting film and that's more from the other side which is to do with the kind of pedagogical relation or you know you talked about transference helen but i think there's something very very fascinating about this film in terms of this question of what pedagogy is and what it isn't and you know from way back in the when the Greeks talk about pedagogy, there's always a kind of erotic question of pedagogy. It's very, there's, there's transference in, you know, when the Greeks think about pedagogy as well, you know, pedagogy is sort of etymologically leading the child, but there are multiple different ways of doing that. You can do it through a kind of seduction. You can do it through sort of force and violence. You can do it through gentle encouragement. You know, there's all these sort of different techniques. And obviously we're presented with this very, very, you know, aggressive abusive violent man who who thinks that this is the way of encouraging greatness and everybody's on the lookout for greatness somebody wants to be great the teacher wants to find a great person and it's completely undecidable he says when they meet later after the kind of fall after they've both kind of fallen um from their their original desire you know the teacher says um I don't think I ever found my Charlie Parker, you know, but it was, it's completely undecidable, for not, not only for the reasons that you say, Helen, about who has access to things, you know, we might never know who has talent and, and you know, in a way it's a, there's so much contingency in success or genius um, as well as the drive and all these other factors. Um, but that kind of, it, it really reminded me of The Kindergarten Teacher, which is a film in which uh, a sort of a female teacher believes that one of her male pupils is a poetic genius and becomes completely obsessive in trying to encourage and elicit this kind of genius from this boy and um, to the extent that it becomes uh, abusive you know that her desire to kind of draw out this this talent that she sees she believes that no one else can see it you know and her the boy's family is very sort of broken and damaged and they're not particularly academic and and she's the one who can see this genius and to the extent that she ends up kind of kidnapping the child and be- gets arrested and and so on and and there's something like about the drive of the pedagogue as well you know this kind of competing drives you know what what is it that that people are looking for when they're looking for or they when they see greatness especially when no one else really recognizes it and yeah i think that's something i wanted to kind of talk about a bit more this pedagogical question and what this might mean actually for for politics because i think there is a sort of um, a problem of authority and pedagogy. You know, it's a kind of crisis of these things at the moment. You know, it's it's not a surprise in the film that the teacher, through the um, the jazz drummer's actions, kind of gets disciplined and then sacked. 
But at the same time, you know, what if it had worked? You know, would we retroactively say, well, the the abusive nature was justified because he stimulated the greatness? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Great, great. So here's my bit. Whiplash's tyrannical music teacher, Terence Fletcher, throws things at students who fail to meet his extraordinarily high standards. He finds it easy to justify himself. He says he is there to push people beyond what's expected of them. By elevating the standard of success to unobtainable heights, Fletcher hopes to produce genius. He doesn't worry about discouraging his students because true geniuses won't be discouraged. By attacking the egos of his students, Fletcher puts them in an existential situation. To continue to build their identities around their abilities as musicians, they must find a way to develop their talent. His assault is not so much on their bodies as it is on their self-concepts. The struggle to surmount his withering critiques is a struggle to preserve the ego. This means that the students who are most responsive to Fletcher's style are the ones who are most psychologically dependent on their identity as musicians. It's not a style that suits people who love music. It's a style that suits people who love being thought of as great musicians by others. Liberal political theory doesn't really trust intrinsic substantive value. We aren't sure an artist is truly great unless that artist is performing as a matter of survival. We want our artists to be starving and to learn to do the kind of art that will rescue them from that state. Our artists starve in two senses. One is literal. Artists struggle to pay the bills and earn a living. But the other is more insidious. The artist struggles to preserve the artist's own identity as an artist, and that means the artist is constantly trying to persuade themselves and others that they are truly worthy of their title. We want art not for art's sake, but for the sake of the survival of the ego. As modern people lose confidence in the reality of the good, they fetishize struggle more and more. If we can't tell the difference between good art and bad art, we can at least tell the difference between art that was the product of struggle and art that was easy to make. Or at least we think we can. We see the same development in political theory, too. Ancient political theorists imagined virtuous societies, but modern political theorists envisage little more than glorious struggles. Montesquieu worried that virtue was unobtainable, that we had no choice but to build societies around honor. Nietzsche mocked virtue outright, arguing not merely that geniuses should struggle with each other for dominion ceaselessly, but that struggling is in their nature. Hannah Arendt sanitized Nietzsche's struggle by condemning violence and hierarchy, but her theory celebrates a public realm where people compete endlessly to establish glorious reputations and legacies. If we can't love art for its own sake, all we can do is use art to make money, to prop up our egos, and to dunk on each other. Without intrinsic value, everything we do is instrumentalized. Without a link to a sense of truth, we retreat ever further into our egos, and that makes us vulnerable to attacks on our sense of identity. This makes it all too easy for the social system to intimidate us into producing obsequious work. The more we come to depend on our identities, the more vulnerable we are to criticism, and the more we fear criticism, the easier it is to force us into competitive games. Instead of making work of real value, we ceaselessly try to impress the teacher. The result is work that is not just derivative, but increasingly useless and stupid. To fit into the teacher's paradigm, we have to suspend our own judgment about what has value, and that means that gradually our values and culture become the product of a game of telephone. This is not to say that we shouldn't challenge students and one another from time to time, but these challenges don't have to involve existential threats to the survival of bodies and egos. Greatness doesn't require a Darwinian struggle. It requires genuine love of the thing. When we love what we're doing, we want to get better for its own sake. We take criticism not to defend our egos, but to get just a little closer to the values we strive to uphold. 
This kind of love requires a level of material and psychological abundance that too often we lack. Why the lack? Because it is through the lack that we can be most easily press-ganged into making whatever capitalism demands. Yeah, I think this is great. Like, uh, there's a lot of like through themes. I think with a lot with what we're saying and sort of coming at it. You know, obviously we have our like respective areas of interest and expertise, but actually there's like quite a lot of of crossover. There's one thing that I um, to pick up on what what Nina was saying was um, about pedagogy. You know, as in like the the teacher being the one who um, has an element of transparency and is looking for the genius ch- genius. Um, you know, young person that they that they uh, elicit the genius from. I mean, all of us have like been teachers in one form or another. Have you guys ever had an experience where you thought like, I have, you know, I've recognized in this student something that nobody else has seen? Yeah, I think there's a kind of interesting question about sort of polyvalence and potentiality, you know, almost I don't know, in the Agambenian sense or when Marx talks about communism in the German ideology, there's a sense in which we don't yet know what we're capable of. We don't yet know who we are, actually. Like, to to even say we have an identity, of course we have a kind of, you know, a capitalist identity and, and, and so on. And I, I very much agree with what Benjamin was saying about the weakness of identity in terms of how that becomes then the, the lack or the leverage, you know, the way into actually um, forcing people to compete because it's not about the thing or the value. It becomes about your fragile, you know, something that is actually incredibly difficult to base any truth upon, you know, and, and I think that the the body as a conduit is, is interestingly explored in this film. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's there's something kind of tragic sometimes I felt when I was teaching for three years and you could see people who had this great love of the subject and often in the third year people would get kind of completely obsessed with philosophy. Like they would have a sort of subjective transformation after about two years and become completely immersed and obsessive about the topic and want to talk about it all the time. And you would know that the vast majority of these people wouldn't really then go be able to use directly anything that they were being taught or had learnt in a certain way. Um, but nevertheless, they were kind of possessed of this enthusiasm. And enthusiasm is this kind of quite religious term. It's like being filled with God in a certain way. And you could see it in them. And on the one hand, this is amazing. What a thing to sort of be part of um, encouraging but on the other hand, what use does it have in this world where they, they now leave with £50,000 of debt and probably a terrible job or no job, you know, if, especially if you're not teaching at elite institutions. You know, none of my students had anywhere necessarily to go afterwards. And, you know, that, I almost felt a kind of guilt sometimes that they'd been awakened in this way. And, you know, I was thinking about Socrates and the question of ego dissolution, again, with reference to what Benjamin was saying, in a way to break down somebody so that they kind of, I mean, it's psychoanalytic too, of course, or to um, provoke this process where someone holds on to an idea and they have to kind of let go of it in a certain way or they, or they end up in aporia, they end up in a state of the pathless path or they're a kind of state of confusion where they can't, in a way, ground their concepts on anything. And that kind of process... Um, it's very disturbing. And this is obviously part of the reason why, why figures like Socrates, Socrates in particular, become a great threat because they, they threaten to undermine the foundations, not in a revolutionary violent sense, but in a conceptual sense. 
you know, all of the things that are supposed to be valued are called into question, perhaps in order to elevate them, you know, as Plato puts it, but it also takes them away from the polis and from the everyday life and, and you know, so away from capitalism in our world in a certain way. Um, you know, and, and so to hold on to that drive. And also I'm reminded of Get Carter, you know, the sheer desire for, for vengeance or vengeance films where someone is just possessed of a particular drive. You know, they've, they've got one thing and it's to get revenge and that's the motive force and it doesn't matter what gets destroyed on the way, including the the vengeance seeker. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's almost the, the zombie possession, like this guy, and I think Benjamin was saying this as well, that like, you know, where where is his... What, what is he really getting out of his process? Like, is he is he enjoying this process? But well, in psychoanalysis, has like a weird relation to the word enjoyment. But like in layman's term, like he seems he seems to absolutely be hating this experience, you know. And almost the drive, as you say, it's like this possession to do absolutely anything, including annihilating yourself, um, in the hopes of achieving this thing. That as as Benjamin, you were saying, like, is it even great art, or is it just a form of technical proficiency that this particular dominating figure deems to be you know representative of um you know good jazz drum playing but also you know is uh, i mean i go into the arts thinking that it was all about you know naively potentially you know um uh finding out what doesn't fit within society or exposing the cracks exposing you know the lacks for want of a better word and instead, you know, when it becomes this sort of corporatized thing and pleasing the teacher, it becomes sort of a confirmatory, um, regurgitative, uh, almost propagandistic uh, form when really, you know, is, is, is the greater achievement to be developing something new or to be, you know, exploding the form or taking it in a di- different direction? I don't know. Yeah, you have to demonstrate to the system that you are capable of fitting into it as it is before you will be permitted the opportunity to revise or reform it in any way. So when I was teaching at Cambridge, students come in and they have all sorts of different ways of writing. And the, the first thing that has to be done is they have to all learn to write in the ordinary way that you're supposed to write to do okay at Cambridge. And how do you get them to do that? Well, you do it through a sequence of carrots and sticks, mainly sticks mainly criticism, but you occasionally give them small bits of praise sprinkled in. And Cambridge teachers, Oxford teachers, are very, very careful about not praising and not praising excessively because they want to keep the student worried about whether they really are a good student and whether they really belong there. We talk about imposter syndrome. This is cultivated to a significant degree. Uh, and the intimidation of the the very well put together, aesthetically well put together teacher who seems to know everything uh, is part of this cultivation of a sense of, do I really belong here? And then this need to prove that you belong there, right? And we, of course, problematize it when the student has a breakdown and intermits and isn't able to prove that they belong there, loses their confidence, can't produce new work. But there's some, there is a kind of implicit belief that by making students feel this way, we'll get more out of them. But of course, in the first instance, we just get them to parrot the aesthetics and the kinds of papers which we expect. And you know, then they do that, they get to the high 2-1 level, and then we go, well, you're not being creative enough for a first. And they go, well, what's a first? And 
you can't tell them exactly what it is. All you can do is tell them, well, it's it's creative and original, and and this is not that. Um, and of course, some of them do figure out how to do work, which which counts to us as a first. And we think when we're giving it a first that we're giving it a first because it's creative or original. But it's undergraduate work. So how creative or original is it going to be in any case? Are they just making the kinds of insights which we have set them up to make? And once they make those insights too often, we decide that, well, now that's common and now that's a 2-1. What, what do you think, Benjamin, like, like these days, obviously, um, I mean, I don't know whether you, there was like a trend, a differing trend over the course of your time at Cambridge, but like um, back in the day, definitely like the way that my my personal like educational journey was, was like very much in the ilk of what you say but you know obviously we hear that now people are more sensitive and you can't do this you can't do that whatever and obviously like this film came out in 2014 but like watching it like the first half where he's not he's not censured in any way it's just like what the fuck you know this is ridiculous how can you be doing this although I have to say it's interesting that um this is another point that I wanted to like maybe draw out that um I don't know whether it's like our, our you know mode of production today or like the political economy but like I think in historical moments, a lot of abuse would have happened in, um, you know, areas of struggle within within society. But I actually think that under whatever form of neoliberal system we are now, like a lot of the abuse happens in the more elite institutions. Obviously, you have things like the U.S. gymnastics. Um, yeah, I mean, it happens often in sport, lots of things like the, the British team who won endless Tour de France's and the British cycling team who were endlessly winning golds left, right and centre. Um, suddenly the athletes were saying that, you know, this was not pastorally OK and whatever. And so obviously at, at the time when they were winning, 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 it was all OK. And then suddenly, you know, it becomes abusive and comments are made about this, that and the other. Um, so do, do you see that mode of teaching dying out or have they... Are they kind of clinging on to it at Cambridge or do you see sort of obviously, you know, Nina, we've been talking about the amount of debt that students in the UK are getting into now. And that that changes the dynamic somewhat, both in terms of what students need out of their education, putting them into a precarious situation. And also, you know, there's this thing of, the, you know, the student is the customer, but they're not really because, you know, they're sort of forced into this. It's more like indentured, I think, than being a customer. But d- does that change the dynamic at all? And have you seen it sort of have an impact? Well, I think that Cambridge is the place which is slowest to go the American way. And the American way is exemplified by Harvard. And at Harvard, it's very difficult to get non-A's. It's very difficult to get bad grades increasingly. Uh, And this is kind of spreading through the elite institutions of the United States. When I was at University of Chicago for my master's, right around when Whiplash came out, Everybody at Chicago said, well, Chicago is much, much tougher than the Ivy League schools. It's much harder to get good grades than the Ivy League schools. I had gone to Warwick for undergrad, and Chicago was much easier, much easier than Warwick, uh, let alone Cambridge, which I didn't even know at that time was much, much harder uh, than Warwick. Uh, University of Chicago was a walk in the park compared to Warwick, and all of the students who had gone to all of the Ivy League schools were saying that University of Chicago is the toughest place they'd ever been. I think what's going on in in the States in particular is that now there's been a total collapse of there being any standards really at all. And so now what they are trying to cultivate in students is confidence. Because if you're confident, 
then you can project your ego more powerfully than other people. And in a world where there are no standards and it's just a battle of who has the strongest ego, who has the will to power, who's the most charismatic, in that Arendtian-Nietzschean struggle, someone who goes to Harvard is advantaged because they believe they know what they're talking about. Yeah, that's very insightful. I, I thought a lot about confidence when I was teaching at Roehampton. Um, and these are largely local working class students. And often one of the problems I had, very different from the distinct from the, the problems you're describing at Cambridge or the carrot stick model, was actually when students had understood something, getting them to understand that they'd understood. Because they were, they were often very um, certain, paradoxically, that they didn't understand something that they understood, as in they lack confidence. You know, they didn't have the confidence necessarily, or quite often I had this experience, to really um, internalize or to grasp that they had grasped something. So a lot of the time I was saying, yes, that's that's it. You've got it. You know, you've, you've understood it. Um, and it's very interesting that you mentioned Warwick because I did my BA and my MA at Warwick. And I did philosophy there. And one of my philosophy lecturers, who happened to, to be a Nietzsche scholar, very interestingly and very it stuck in my mind, he would sort of repeatedly say to us one way or another that there was nothing interesting about us. Like he didn't care who we were. Like it didn't matter, um, you know, in a sense, anything about us, like anything about our identities wasn't interesting at all. He wouldn't even have used that word then. This is back in the late 90s. But that it was in a way that the nothingness was your power. It was like, why should I listen to you? You're not inherently interesting to me. You know, you're nobody to me. He would say, you know, you in a way, like fill yourself with interestingness was the challenge, I suppose. He was saying, you know, so it's it's a very opposite, I suppose, of that idea that we should respect people's identities and, and so on. It was it was basically saying you are nothing. And that's good, because in a way that you can you sort of, I don't know, rise to the challenge of, of becoming interesting. And yeah, I really I really appreciated this. <laughs> It's really interesting because, like, um, the um, the the issue of sort of like beginning with emptiness, like being able to take in something. So you know, like when you have a baby, they have to get to a stage where they are able to like ingest food. And the the difficulty is, it's like you know, in order to be able to sort of like begin something, you have to have like you know, you have to like be within the lack in order to sort of fill yourself up. And then identity often can be used as obviously, you know, um, that that I think. Uh, I, I'm really against the sort of like um, facilization of psychoanalysis and like this idea that a psychoanalysis is just about sort of like overcoming repression because you do need certain repressions and you do need certain like you need you need an ego and all the certain stuff to like enter into the world. But like you know that the the identity questions are sort of these totalizing kind of totems that you can hang your hat on, but ways to avoid this feeling of lack. And we we aren't okay within society we have become less and less okay with accepting our own nothingness or accepting our own lack and so you know this this whole thing of this jazz jazz drama you know like creating this identity i just you know that that the the um the meal where he's having i think with his family and he has relatives who are sort of the division three but you know division three and um football football players and just this sort of like desperate thing of like well that doesn't mean anything it's got to be this and it's got to be this particular thing and everything I can only be myself if I rely on this external signifier but I you know I think that in order to create particularly like great art you know you have to be within this you have to you know at least allow this experience of lack 
or potential failure to sort of like imbue everything you do. It's like the scientist who who discovers something new. You know, the scientific method relies on you know, you 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 don't know what's going to happen. The whole the whole the way that this experiment, you know, this great like um, innovation of 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 you know human potential is like. In order for the experiment to be an experiment or to discover something, you have to let go of everything. You know, obviously, after a while, science and knowledge builds up. But like, as you said earlier, Nina, like we we can't predict the future. We don't know what's going to happen. And as soon as we rely on that or we project some utopian, you know, fixedness into the future, we completely avoid the here and now. And we completely avoid like what actually potential really is. Yeah, I totally agree about this point about failure, also about um, error and obstacles. I mean, if you read Gaston Bachelard and a lot of um, French philosophy of science and Canguillem as well, they're both very influential for Foucault, they they make it very clear that the history of science, I mean, of course, it's not a linear process, but just how much it depends, if you like, on randomness, contingency, chaos, error, accident, you know, and there, there are lots of very famous stories about how things are discovered through, you know, accidents, basically. And, you know, but in a broader sense, that idea of failure, I think, absolutely, it's, it's, I mean, Simone de Beauvoir makes this point very clearly, and I love this point in The Second Sex, where she says, in a way, women won't be free until they're able to fail. So freedom is basically the freedom to fail, because the moment you're not dependent, you know, and she she doesn't think that, you know, labor will save women. It's not suffrage that makes women equal. It's not, it, you know, entry into the market, uh, you know, to, to the labor market that makes women free, right? Those are not enough, right? Those are not sufficient conditions for, for freedom or equality. But what is, is the, is the lack, you know, that's what free, it's, it's, it's the capacity or the, I mean, also on the part of women to give up on forms of dependency, you know, to, to say, I, I want to be independent. You know, that, that word is kind of overused and it's a sort of cliche in a certain feminist sense. But actually what de Beauvoir really means is basically having this vertiginous, open relationship to your own capacity to fail and having, in a way, no one else to blame but yourself. And that's what freedom is. And that's the sort of freedom that women have been um, uh, prevented from having through their own, you know, bind, binding to men or through men's protection or being dependent. And I love this, like this, this failure as, as lack, I suppose, or lack as failure. But yeah, and I guess the thing is, it's like part of our responsibility maybe to us as a society is to find ways in which we can create a, a world where it, we, can, we can experience that possibility of failure. You know, that um, Benjamin, you were talking about, you know, the material conditions in terms of education. And it's like, how can you even be able to be in this stage where you yeah you're not entirely dependent without just being completely on the street or and you know this it's it's a, like a really sort of like you know multiplicitous issue it's not one thing or the other because obviously a lot of us you know when we're engaged in this sort of capitalistic ideology of promise which is like well you know I'll be nothing unless I get to promotion I'll be nothing unless I achieve something so you know obviously we can get rid of those kinds of faith um things in the way of accepting failure that like aren't actually just materially necessary to just like you know existing like we don't need a 10 bedroom house or a six figure salary or whatever but then on the other side yeah we do need to be able to find ways that allow the greatest number of people the freedom to be able to experience the possibility of failure yeah yeah i i think there are really two kinds of people right now people who can go move in with their parents for a year and people who can't 
if you have the freedom to go move in with your parents for a year, then you can make any mistake. You can screw up in all kinds of ways. And that means you can try things that are risky. That means you can be less obsequious. Uh, you have to be obsequious if you have no alternative but to be successful. You have to suck up to whoever is in charge of whether what you do counts as success or failure. And so I think one of the, the struggles is as we try to open up institutions to more vulnerable or marginalized populations, uh, those populations don't have the option to fail. And because they don't have the option to fail, they get backed into doing work which is less uh, their own. Mm -hmm. I think this is, I hear this all the time in the set that I'm in, like, oh, you know, no plan B, you know, this sort of like fake Nietzschean Ubermensch thing of like, the only the people who succeed, it's because they wanted it the most, or you tried the most, or you worked the most, no plan B, you can't have a plan B. And it's just purely ideological, you know, this sort of thing that like, A, the people who ascend, it's not contingency, it's it's purely deserved, which is absolutely rubbish, obviously. Obviously, you know, we have a hand in what we do, a large hand, but it comes with, you know, material conditions, contingency. We're living within, you know, the chaos moss sort of thing. So, yeah, it's um, it's definitely complicated. There's, I mean, and obviously this isn't to say that there aren't, like, actual um, things that we need. And I know, like, as a woman uh, recently turned 30, you know, there's a thing of, like, well... I want to have children at some stage. And that kind of comes into it and sort of like uh, creating, you know, and, and there, there are certain things of like you needing certain material comfort to be able to do that. And it's becoming a more and more elite thing even to be able to have children. But yeah, but it, even despite these givens, there's always givens. I think that we are really caught up in not in escaping the sense of lack rather than embracing it. And I think that's led to a lot of the kind of left critiques of the family recently is the fact that increasingly you have to have a certain kind of material position to have children. And particularly if you grew up thinking that your children haven't really been properly cared for unless they've been sent to expensive exactly. educational institutions, yeah. then you not only need enough money to have children, you need, uh, you have to have enough money to have cultured children. And that is a quite high barrier to entry. And so the family gets set up by, I think, parts of the left as the enemy of radicalism because of how increasingly expensive it is to have children and therefore how that drags people toward uh, a more obsequious relationship with capital. But I don't think that's to be laid at the feet of the parents. That is surely to be laid at the feet of the system for creating coercive conditions under which families form. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not like a kind of like, you know, I'm pretty, um, you know, that, that the question of the family is, is like an interesting one, basically. But I do find it interesting just to go back to Nina's point about this idea of the predictability of the future and this sort of like right wing deviation in Marx, where he was Hegelian up to the point where, you know, you predict that as long as you do this, you can you can you can create some conditions in the future. And I, it is interesting, you know, that it sort of runs counter to Marx, a lot of this stuff where it's saying, like, you know, where, where the family equals patriarch of the family equals capitalism whereas you know it says in the communist manifesto like wherever the um uh you know the, effectively i can't remember the, the exact wording but you know the capitalism will annihilate patriarchy and will annihilate you know the family this kind of things but the point being that um you know just 
this idea that we can predict a future by eliminating something, we can achieve something. We don't know what the effect would be of eliminating the family. It's not necessarily going to be a good thing. But we have to understand like what the family is a response to, you know, in terms of material conditions, what it's a manifestation of, rather than it's just this, you know, annihilatable object that's on our, you know, in our way of achieving a utopian world. I think, you know, we're much less powerless in relation to to knowing what, what might happen. Yeah, this reminds me of, you know, so we were talking about differences between Cambridge and the Ivy League schools. And there's, you know, on the one hand, this very tough standard that is very difficult to reach that has that kind of whiplash feel to it. And on the other hand, the collapse of standard where there's nothing in particular to really aim at. And I think oftentimes we get bothered by something that's rigid and dogmatic and feels limiting. And we respond by deconstructing and we respond by throwing out standard in a totalizing way. And we get into this swinging between nihilism and dogmatism. And that that swing, each one is the genesis of the other. The response to nihilism is to set up a dogma to end the chaos. And the response to dogmatism is to thoroughly destroy standards and, and to create a nihilism. And when we get stuck in that pendulum, then we are, are swinging between different lags. I mean, that's why I think, I mean, on this question of family, that you have this kind of almost paradoxical postmodern return to traditionism on parts of the right, you know, and you have this very kind of strange scene of, of people um, talking about a kind of almost like a rustic image or an idyllic idea of owning land and raising a family, but they're using Twitter to kind of, and memes to sort of promote this kind of very traditionalist idea. So you have this very, you know, it, it, this must be a kind of post postmodern thing. I, I'm sure of it, right? But the I think the important thing here is in relation to the question of the, the family, it's like the right or whatever you want to say is trying to preserve the family, right? It's trying to say, look, the family is a, a bastion of freedom away from the system. Um, and I think we're going to see a massive uptick we already did in homeschooling, although a lot of people also realised how difficult it was to teach in the lockdown. I think a lot of parents were, were, were actually it's a very interesting lesson for them that to realise that te teachers actually do a specific and tricky job. Um, but I think, you know, perhaps more in America, you have the image of the kind of pioneer and, and, and everything more in your, you know, recent history. The idea of kind of um, keeping the family like a sacred space, as if you can kind of, um, you know, preserve it, actually, in terms of the, the ideology, the, you know, its meaning, its values um, away from the, the kind of encroachment of liberal, I mean, whether we're still in liberal society, but, you know, the encroachment of an increasing nihilism, singledom, childless, you know, metropolitan, you know, SSRI type, you know, image of, of the depressing present. And you can see why that's very powerful. You know, the family is always this powerful thing. And I think a lot of the left critiques of the family are very misplaced, I have to say. I mean, I take Benjamin's point about the kind of economics, you know, that that's very important to point out. You know, it's like basically becoming very, very difficult to have a family. You know, the family's always been an economic unit. You can read Marx and Engels on this, you, you know, the, the, the movement from the larger families to the nuclear family. And now we're perhaps into another, another phase where an awful lot of people aren't having children. Um, lots of I, I think they, they're saying something like 25 percent of um, millennial Gen X women aren't going to have children. Um, and that's quite high. <laughs> and, 
you know, there, there are lots and lots of reasons for that, but among them are the kind of economic reasons. I think there's also a kind of strain of leftist critique of the family, though, which is actually much more on the nihilistic side, much more to tied to kind of transhumanist um, projects, um, which is about kind of the disavowal of um, the body and of um, the also the I don't know the the possible goodness of having a family in a way. You know, it's it's simply to denigrate the family. Um, but I think that's h- highly compatible with this kind of l- late capitalist, transhumanist, lonely, isolated, you know, existence. I know. I think this thing of like um, the the language and signifiers of emancipation being very convenient for the expansion of capital. <laughs> you know, so, you know, one can become a sort of a foot soldier on behalf of the expanding realm of what the market, you know, can um, exploit us through you know by saying by by positing um with great certainty that it's going to lead to something different um so i think you know i think there is often you know we talk about often economics is just purely analyzed through you know economical monetary systems you know um critiques rather than understanding how how markets function on sort of a libidinal level um I'm quite passionate about like having, you know, reintroducing Freud in relation to our libidinal investment in the sort of ideology, ideology of promise that basically this is how the, the, the market system functions. And so it's really difficult to just posit, you know, so when a neurotic goes to psychoanalysis, um, they often return to psychoanalysis because they're, they're suffering in a repeated symptom. So a repeated trope is appearing in their life that they're trying to escape but it just keeps coming up again and again and again so for instance you know they might keep having the same dynamic of toxic partner and every time they have this partner they're like right I've learned my lesson I'm not going to pick this person type of person anymore I'm going to do a new thing and it's going to be different and it keeps becoming the same thing so the point being is it's just like just because an aesthetic value you know might look aesthetically left-wing or aesthetically emancipatory or one might have had a previously bad experience but that doesn't mean like a a new a new experience is guaranteed on a new positive experience is guaranteed on the other side of it and it's not to be like conservative in any way or to say that like families are natural or anything like that it's just that we have to be you know (laughs) careful what we wish for sometimes you know and we'll always have a new set of problems which is just part of life you know and and cool or whatever but um i do find it kind of uh uncomfortable listening to a lot of sort of the you know we have a utopian world on the other side you know if we all women don't have to be mothers anymore or something and it's just i think it's much more complicated than that yeah i think that when people are feel that they're losing politically they retreat into whatever it is that they take to be the private space so for some people, it's the family. For some people, it's the individual. For the transhumanists, it's the idea of themselves detached even from a body. Some kind of fortress that you feel is apart from all of the outside world that isn't right, is falling apart. And I think one of the great contributions of feminist theory is that public-private distinctions are false and uh, obscurant, obscurantist. Every time we try to retreat into a non-political or a pre-political, the consequences of the political invade that and uh, mess with it in ways that make it very hard for us to have whatever it is that we think that we're going to have in, in that protected space.
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And there's a kind of complicated question about the relationship between the oikos and the polis, because in a way, the polis has become the oikos, right? So it's the household spread out to the, the world. You know, the market, the, you know, obviously oikos economy, the market in a way, which was the household, became the whole of society, as did the private. So there is no privacy either, if you saw what I mean. So, you know, obviously, if you're online, you're a target, you're a, you know, you're a named person, you, you know, you're easily discoverable. The government knows who you are in multiple ways, et cetera, et cetera. So the question of the, you know, well, the, I mean, the interesting question might be, where is, is there any domestic? Is there any domos left? You know, where would it be? There's a, there only seems to be this kind of nomos, you know, oikos thing where and and this kind of total transparency of the person i think the question of the private is quite interesting in terms of um i think we have what what so i can't this is not my thought at all um so i don't know who i'm taking it from but i've read it recently about the idea that sort of the surveillance state actually serves to make us feel more private so you know we have this sort of dichotomy obviously you know that the we have an, a threat to our private. So, you know, so to talk to go back to psychoanalysis again, that like um, I've heard criticisms of psychoanalysis that it's about quietism, you know, in introspection, but it's actually completely the opposite. I just did uh, um, a discussion today with a psychoanalyst about this, that like it's about addressing your public and that basically you cannot access this thing called the unconscious without a dialogue with the other. And that within, you know, sort of capitalism, there's a... Um, Set, you know, we, we always have to have sort of a, a, an encroachable boundary that is either overcome or has a threat of being overcome. So we have to set up new territories. You know, at first there's you know, expansion into different countries and colonialism, and then there's you know space exploration. We have to keep setting up these new boundaries that can be overcome. And I think that that you know, obviously, this is not to say that there isn't a public and a private, but I think the public-private dichotomy is an interesting one. And that the threat to the private, even though so much of what we have is public, you know, I think almost accepting that we're in this world where we're in the public is 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 sort of safer than, um, so, you know, having a fantasy of seclusion um, that basically that gets us to act in ways whereby we want to sort of safeguard a private. But that's just a, maybe on a sort of operating on a different level. Now, is there any political movement that doesn't right now have a very powerful fantasy of seclusion? We've got the family, we've got the transhumanist uh, mind, we've got the nation state, we've also got, I think, in the left critiques of all of these things, the commune or the village, that is another kind of, of seclusion. The locality uh, calls for direct democracy, for something that feels more like Athens. I don't think there's any major political movement right now that doesn't have this uh, on some level. Everything which is a critique of, say, the neoliberal consensus seems to be critiquing it from the idea that the neoliberal consensus is destroying the human and that the human is to be found in the particular. And so they're all trying to wall something off. And then they, they're vicious about the other people who are trying to wall off other things that are different from the thing that they want to wall off. When really, there's no fundamental difference between the psychological impulse driving the desire to wall off the village commune from the psychological impulse which drives the desire to wall off the family. I, I think it's kind of dialectic. I, I personally think that there's an emancipatory insight into seeing the universal as a universal lack. So the only thing we share is what we don't share. 
So we're all particular and everything like that. And we all, you know, we have these private aspects and certainly there are things that we all want to keep private and we all sort of have to keep private as sort of ego subjects or whatever. But that there is something that transcends any of these divisions and it's not a thing, it's a not thing. Um, so yeah, I think that there's like an amount, you know, there's potentially who the fuck knows, but like something or a mode of um, the political that's within this, universalist non-universalist so universalist not thing um so sort of like a dialectical politics related to the universal um and that that maybe can be a way to sort of i don't know not necessarily overcome but like re reconfigure like and, and a lot of the identity politics is about obliterating is, is residing in the particular to such an extent that you cannot access the universal. And the universal being that, like, so what I think about Orientalism, like, really, and a lot of the stuff about, like, women and women leaders really expresses this really well, that this other is a magical whole. They can teach us everything. You know, we, you know, we people here, um, we, we are, we need to be taught. We're lacking subjects. We're humans because we're lacking subjects. We're the universal and everybody else is the particular who can teach us the lesson. The, the female leader is much better because they are, you know, more in touch with some ephemeral mother earth thing. But really, you know, the emancipatory thing is to be like, no, to be human is to be messy and lacking and complicated. And the oriental other doesn't exist, you know. So I don't know where I'm going with this, but the point being is like, I think, you know, maybe this public private thing, if we can, there is something public in all of us. And so maybe the public thing is this universal lack. And maybe if we can bring that out, um, that could do something. Yeah, I mean, a, a few years back, I was trying to do this work around this idea of uh, negative solidarity, which was basically pr precisely this idea of a kind of identifying with the nothing in everyone, and in the other, um, particularly thinking about kind of um, the politics of asylum, and the, the forms of kind of molar identities that were being placed onto entire groups. So it's like those who have a country and those who don't have a country, but rather to say, you know, in a sense that imagine a, a form of subjective destitution in which you are kind of interchangeable with everyone else, right? So it's not a kind of positive humanism in the sense of trying to appeal to some kind of set of human values that we all should hopefully share, but rather precisely to um, uh, evacuate, if you like, any notion of the human without becoming um, inhumane, <laughs> you know, to, to say that there is this kind of, yeah, exactly, this negative solidarity that's possible simply by virtue of belonging to a, a set which has a, no other kind of content. Yeah, absolutely, because it's like, the universe is like A equals A and Hegel, like A doesn't ever equal A. But if you can have, the only thing that is universal is a, is a lack, you know. It's And, you know, we are all, in order to be speaking subjects, like we, we wouldn't be speaking subjects. We wouldn't be sensing experiential beings without a lack in the first place. So it is something, you know, that marks, marks everybody. And that isn't, yeah, it isn't a categorizable thing. And it's not like, as you say, some, you know, prissy kind of humanistic you know <laughs> yeah it's much messier than that potentially yeah and it cuts across all of the different cultural distinctions which usually permeate our discourse and i think that's really a lot of what has motivated us to do this show uh this is the thing that the show fundamentally is about it's about the lack that we all share yeah so <laughs> is there anything lacking in this episode or or shall we wrap up 
everything <laughs> we uh, I don't know I, I've enjoyed this um so far how about you Menina I I think it's very well rounded it's uh it's almost <laughs> perfect but not quite there's sort of you know enough beautiful flaws um involved too what what I um discovered about podcasting is just this thing about like addressing you know it's the same sort of I think it's like similar to a psychoanalytic practice where you work out what you think through a public kind of conversation and I think there's not enough of this because we're all so afraid and we're also you know things I think the capitalist ideology is really sort of quietest and don't talk about this don't say this it's just don't whatever but almost I think we can't come to understand what we think without public dialogue and I think podcasts are sort of like a great way to do that. Uh, that's why Plato but... always wrote his stuff as di- as dialogue because uh, any kind of long form writing is just an imitation of a good conversation. <laughs> I was impressed, Benjamin, that you had you came written a nice poetic piece of writing. Yeah, it's very good. It was very yeah. good. Oh, thanks. Do you know what I'm going to do next time? I'm going to do a slam poem. Oh Not. no! <laughs> That's just a joke because it's like the worst, the worst. I just can't. Oh, do it! Get, do it! I'm gonna put. Maybe I should. I put like random emphasis on like the third word in the phrase, and then like speed up and slow down and go quiet. Really, maybe I should do a bit of performance art and do some, some yeah poetry <laughs> in, in public. In public, this is your. You know, this is overcoming your your fears and my fears. Yes. <laughs> no. Well, yes, should we wrap this episode up then? then, Yeah, yeah. So thank you guys. And of course, there is always more lacking. And you can hear more about what's lacking on our Patreon-exclusive B-Side episode, which we'll be recording shortly. So thank you guys so much for joining us for this first episode. We're going to do this every week for as long as we possibly can. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. (laughs)